everyone. And so um, have appreciated the ministry this morning in um, yeah, worship and also uh, uh, Etian, is it? Uh, and um, the uh, sharing there of the persecuted church. And so it is a reality and it kind of, um, we'd be ignorant and foolish to think that, especially here in Victoria, out of all of Australia, some of the things that are going on and uh, how these are encroaching upon um, various freedoms that we have uh, you know, taken for granted in many ways. And so uh, we need to be faithful to preach the gospel, stand for the gospel in light of the spirit of the age in which we live and, and also uh, be uh, forever mindful of the dangers that are inherent within Western civilization and the prosperity that God has blessed the West with, but really uh, must be uh, harnessed also for the kingdom of God and his purposes. Amen. All right, well, let's proceed. Let's move on. And I want to share from the Word of God this morning and um, uh, Romans chapter 6. And I want to focus on a particular uh, scripture and, and more so a, a particular word that we will fo- uh, zoom in on a little later. But um, uh, I want to share this in the context of really what is quite a significant aspect of my experience and journey as a Christian over the years in minis- uh, as a Christian and also in ministry, um, knowing that uh, obviously I've been here at Kingsway for some six years, seven years, uh, thereabouts, and uh, prior to that for 20 years I was uh, um, uh, with the previous fellowship that I was serving in all, those, all that time. And I ran into some uh, difficulties and uh, as I have, uh, was doing working through various issues, which I'll kind of touch upon as we move forward, I had the opportunity to speak with the founder, uh, who was American-based, but I had, he had ministered many times over the years. Uh, and, uh, and, and in saying this, was a, is, a, is a wonderful, he's still alive, well, he's a wonderful uh, uh, man of God. God has accomplished much through him. Um, but in this particular instance, I could not reconcile uh, some things and I began to speak with him and engage him and had the opportunity to meet with him on uh, one occasion uh, and also share some email and uh, to discuss it. So you probably think, okay, where are we heading? What's, what, what am I talking about? I'm, I'm laying a foundation and a little bit of background because this was very significant for me. And it bared a lot uh, on uh, where I am today and how I think and how I uh, go about the uh, work of the Lord and the ministry that I'm a part of. And so, um, but what I did understand is once I understood uh, the, this particular pastor, his, uh, his view on the particular scripture, once I got to the root of his understanding, I understood why he practiced what he practiced, not from a personal perspective, but from a corporate or a collective perspective in which um, uh, uh, the fellowship in which I grew up in. Now, to give you an example of that, what I'm referring to is uh, um, uh, standards of righteousness. So where I came from, if we were to uh, be involved in the church and in any form of public ministry, whether that was just uh, collecting an offering or uh, worship or, or any, any form of public ministry, then we had to adhere to various standards. And uh, those uh, particular, there were a few, but the ones that related to uh, a standard of righteousness were this. Noble in and of themselves, but it was one, not to own a TV, and two, not to attend the theatre. And so, um, and so th- that was what they, the, we proceeded upon. 
But um, what I realized is over the years where you have an external form of religion and holiness and uh, holiness teachings, then what begins to happen, if you, don't, if you lack the proper foundation biblically of, uh, of how, to, how that is established, then if you proceed upon a wrong principle, you will inevitably run into various problems. Uh, and, uh, and I was a part of that problem and I observed that problem and that led me to where I understand the scriptures today. And so it revolves around a particular word that's found, a verse and word that is found in Romans chapter 6. And it's this word uh, that's used here in the New King James. It's called reckon. Reckon yourselves. So this word reckon. Now it's, a, it's, it's a, a just in the, in the context of everything, it's just one particular word, but it actually has great um, significance and implication in terms of what Paul is teaching and practically how it applies to us as Christians to live the Christian life in the sphere and context of holiness and Christian sanctification uh, to be more specific. And so it's important that we understand, one, what the scripture says, two, uh, uh, how to apply it, and three, how to live a life that is acceptable and pleasing unto the Lord, because the greater context of what Paul is addressing, as we will discover, relates around Christian sanctification. It relates around the issues of righteousness. It relates around the issue of holiness, these biblical teachings and doctrines that we find in the scriptures. But yet we find over the years that can cause various controversy for various reasons. But what we must understand is this. Holiness is both positional and practical. Holiness is both positional and progressive. And you cannot uh, uh, avoid those two aspects. They are the foundations of, uh, and, and where, where, uh, of, um, uh, of holiness scripture and teaching that must be understood because if you lack a proper foundation and you proceed upon, upon a wrong principle of holiness, then you will run into various problems of legalism and other things and so forth. But also what I want to focus on as I lay this foundation is that clearly the Bible teaches us that in this process there is God's part and there's our part. There is his part and there is our part. There is what God does and there is what we do. And so, of course, you can't lean too far to one side or the other because uh, you can, again, get, establish an imbalance. But the fact remains the two exist and they, there's a tension between the two and to neglect one to the other is to create an error. And so we want to kind of see it this morning as, we, uh, as it is revealed to us in the Scriptures because how do we get the right tension in relation to this? Well, the Scripture. Amen. The Bible, the Word of God, and all that it teaches. And so I want to read just one verse, although we will refer to many verses in and around this. So obviously keep your Bible open as we reference. But I want to emphasize, uh, because the title of my message this morning is called The Reckoning. The Reckoning. So verse 11, Paul says, Likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. There it is. There's that word reckon. And so let's put some context to a very potent truth and declaration that Paul is making here in this particular scripture. Because the book of Romans, and Paul is writing, and we know we call this, this you know, um, it establishes fundamental Christian systematic doctrine uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We make Romans so, the fundamental in relation to that. And to a great extent, rightly so. But it is important to understand the various things that Paul is addressing in this particular letter. And uh, what is, is uh, and having just studied it, and I know that others have studied it as well, uh, you will realize that in the various first uh, chapters, Paul is dealing with the issue of justification. That we are freed from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, and we have been declared and imputed with the righteousness of God. And that is our position. So he's dealing with that and he's also dealing with the fact of how God in Christ has dealt with our sins. That is, having transgressed the law of God, being sinners, we have, uh, we have committed sin. And as a result of that, Jesus' death and, uh, and his resurrection and all that he has accomplished in the work of Calvary, it accomplished uh, uh, our justification that we could be made right with God. And our sins, as uh, Brother Colm was pointing out, having been cast into the sea of forgetfulness and all the various things as far as the east is from the west, uh, our sins that those things that we have committed against God have been done away with. Praise the Lord. But you see, now in chapter 6, Paul is not dealing with the issue of our sins, but rather there is a shift and he is dealing now primarily not with justification, but he's dealing with sanctification. And in dealing with sanctification, he's dealing now not with our sins in the plural sense, but he's de dealing with our sin, or in other words, our sinful nature. And in, do in speaking about this, uh, he's trying to demonstrate uh, that God in his grace has made provision that we don't have to live anymore under the power or dominion of sin in which we once did when we were outside of Christ. And this is important for us to grasp. And so now we're dealing with the fact that sin no longer is to have dominion over us as Christians because we have been set free in Christ Jesus. And so we know that this is the context because we also know that earlier, just in chapter 6, Paul raises the question that some might be thinking because he's talking about God's grace and how abounding it is and how wonderful and glorious it is. And where sin abounds, God grace abounds so much more. And so grace, the grace being the foundation of the gospel, and yet in, but the misinterpretation of that is, well, then if, if, if grace abounds as a result of my sin, then hey, can I continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no, you don't understand God's grace. You, under, you have misunderstanding God's grace. 
God's graces are not a license to continue to live in sin under the power of sin or under its dominion, but God's grace is not only one that sets us free and just brings about a justification of our sins, but grace also sets us free to live and walk in a manner that frees us from the power of sin or our sinful nature in our lives. And so he says grace is actually the mechanism or the, that which God has made provision for that becomes the basis. Not a, it's not a license to sin, but grace gives us the ability or the power to live free from sin. Now, that's the, that's the ideal. I know in practicality we fail many times, but that is the word of God. This is what Paul is teaching. This is what he's establishing. And he makes emphasis of that because he talks about the fact that we have died with Christ and now we have been raised with Christ and we are to walk in a newness of life. And he uses at the beginning of chapter 6, he begins to talk about that which relates to um, the spiritual reality of what it means to be in Christ Jesus, which is expressed in water baptism. Water baptism, uh, uh, we know the immersion in water and coming out of the water, all that it represents a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is what Paul is revealing to us in those verses, uh, especially the first six verses there of chapter 6. And it's important to grasp it. And again, I've touched upon this before, and so I, 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 I hope many of us understand, but it's always good to hear these things again. Because it's the truth, and the repetition of these things is, a, is of benefit for us. But notice, look at verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So in other words, now that we are in Christ... Now that we have been born again, now that we are, uh, have been de- we are dead uh, to sin and alive to God, the fact is, is this, what has been accomplished is now that we are positioned in, in Christ Jesus and sin, has, we have, our old man was crucified with him. What is the old man? And I think people have a misunderstanding when they talk about the old self. Uh, it's not the old self that Paul is referring to, but rather he's talking about uh, being in Adam, as in chapter 5. He talks about being in Adam and being in Christ. The old man is the Adamic nature, the sinful nature that we have. And so the body of sin, my, the, the, knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that is the power of sin should no longer have dominion over us, but it is now been nullified and it has now been crucified so that we have been set free to live a life that is holy, to live a life that is free from the dominion and power of sin in our lives. That's what Paul is telling us, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. This is all past. This is what has been accomplished already. This is our position. And he talks about all of this and he says in verse 14, if you look at it, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So meaning, because you are under God's grace... 
The, the reality is this. Sin will not have dominion over you because God's grace is not a license to sin. It's a, it's a power to overcome sin. That's what we must understand. That's the position. That's the truth. That's the positional aspect of our union with Christ. But in saying that, Paul takes this truth. He takes what he has expounded here and he hinges it to, our, uh, to these two, two issues of, of, of our positional righteousness or our position in Christ and practical living. Or in other words, uh, our position in holiness and sanctification and the progressive practical aspect of the Christian life. And he hinges them together. He brings them together and that is done in verse 11 when he says, Likewise, you reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin but alive unto God. So that we have to take an account of that and we'll get to that in a moment and this is important. But we are to reckon ourselves dead and alive, dead to sin and alive to God. Now, let me bring you back because I said earlier that I had had discussions with the, um, uh, the, the founder of uh, the previous fellowship that I was a part of in relation to these t- this topic. And this, the very word was, was this in verse 11, the, the, the reckoning. And, and he wrote to me and he said that the problem with some is that he used, and I'll quote him, he said these words, he says that the error, he's trying to demonstrate an error of understanding and he says these words, that, the, uh, that the, the reckoning automatically produces the action without self-effort or works. Now remember, the context of my discussion with him is the standards and why we have to have an outward form structure of righteous standards to live by. Noble, well-intended, but problematic ultimately because of what they produce, pride, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and so forth. So he's saying, and he's using this reasoning to justify his position, that the problem is too many look at the reckoning of Romans 6 verse 11, and they make an error, and their error is is that they believe that the reckoning automatically produces the action. So somehow God does all the work and uh, there's no effort or works involved from the believer's point in terms of him having to do something. So he's saying that that is a problem. And I must say I have read uh, uh, those that have that particular viewpoint. So I agree with him in essence that there is a, 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 an error in that, that the reckoning does not automatically produce action without self-effort or works. But, but at the same time, uh, the, if, the issue of self-effort and works, when, it's the, when that's disconnected from the grace of God, when it's not rooted in a proper foundation uh, of God's power and his strength, because the two must work together, then there, again, that it's in and of itself as well produces problems. So his statement contains a truth that the reckoning automatically produces the action without self-effort or works. This, truth, this statement contains a truth because God's power and God's grace does produce righteousness. There is that work that God does in us 
and uh, that He's at work in us to accomplish. But that doesn't automatically bring it to pass, does it? There is a human element that is involved, that is dependent, and must be working together with God to accomplish uh, His will. So in other words, there is a need for self-effort. There is a need to make choices. There is a need uh, that relates to human responsibility. And so there are various truths that are associated with this. There's God's part and there is our part. But you see, what I have, under, have learned is if we are to understand our part and our responsibility before God, it is imperative, it is fundamentally uh, crucial that we understand God's part. You have to have a proper foundation because if the foundation is wrong, then you will proceed on a false principle and you will, as I said, you will run into problems and this is what happens in people's lives because, you know, they think, oh, I've got to be holy, I've got to be righteous and so they do everything with being, not understanding God's grace, not appropriating God's grace and so it's all rooted in their self-effort and works and ultimately they find themselves all entwined in legalism, they find themselves constantly failing God anyway <laughs> And uh, because, uh, uh, as Paul says, uh, the harder I tried, the more I I stuffed up in Romans chapter 7. You can't accomplish it in your own strength. In actual fact, the Bible says that uh, the strength of sin is the law. So the more you try harder to try and establish outward rules and regulations, the more you're setting yourself up for failure in the long term. So we have to understand God's work. We have to understand God's grace. We have to understand our position. This is what Paul is establishing here in chapter 6. But then he hinges the two together because they can't neglect practical living. Oh, well, I'm under God's grace. I can just do whatever I want. No, you can't. You can't because you have to now connect the two together. They have to be married together. There's the positional and there's the progressive. There's the positional and the practical. And it's found in verse 11 where Paul uses the word, reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin. You see, when people endeavour to live the Christian life in their own strength and effort, they will have serious consequences. Yet at the same time, those who are waiting for God to somehow miraculously produce holiness without their effort are as as deluded as the other. So what I'm saying is, is you have to have a balanced understanding because there's errors on both sides if you don't have a proper foundation. And so I want to try and just present to you a foundation this morning. And so let's start. It's found in the scripture, but we'll start in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12. You can go there with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul's writing here, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Gee, what's Paul focusing on there? He's focusing on the issue of self-effort. He's telling you to work it out. Work, work it out. Work out that salvation. That, that is the progressive aspect, the practical aspect of your salvation and of your Christian life. We have to work it out. But is it just dependent upon our self-effort and our works? No. Look at verse 13. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in other words, it is an outflow of God who is at work in us. So in other words, God is working in us and we are to work it out. That's what the, that, that is the biblical basis of the scriptures. And so there is the God sent, there's the God aspect and there's the human aspect. And the can't, you can't lean too much to one side or too much to the other. God, by his grace, amen, has to help us in that area. But nevertheless, we have to work it out. You have to make an effort. You have to make choices. And as you start making choices, there might, and you start setting up a, 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 a conduct, a, 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 an aspect of holiness and righteousness and conduct in your lives, there will be those that will turn around and say you're being legalistic and this and that, but you're not. You're actually, and you might have a rule of life for you, but that doesn't mean you can apply it to all. But in saying that, we all reserve the right to, under, to make those decisions and those judgments in accordance to what is right and wrong before the Lord. And this is what Paul is teaching in chapter 6. He's taking this principle that we just read in Philippians. So let's go back to verse 11 and let's look at it a bit more specifically. Because he says in verse 11, likewise, you also. Now, He's obviously tying the previous verse. So let's go back to verse 10. For the death that he died, meaning Christ, he died to sin once and for all, which is what Colin just said. He died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also. So in other words, positionally, in Christ... We look at what Christ has done and he, the Bible says, uh, the death that he died, he died once and for all to sin. And so therefore, the life he lives, he lives to God. So likewise, likewise you too. He says, reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in other words, you're going to have to reckon for yourselves upon this reality, upon this biblical gospel truth. Because failure to do so will not bind you or root you in to what he has established in those previous verses of chapter 6 of our union with Christ and the newness of life that we are to walk in, which is going to involve not only, yes, thank God for our position, but practically, it must be observable. It must work itself out in our lives. Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. Now let's look at this word reckon. What does it mean? You might have heard people use it in the English language. They'll say, oh, you know, they talk about some situation. They go, well, I reckon it'll be okay. I reckon it's going to be all right. It's the old Aussie equivalent. She'll be right, mate. Or, I reckon um, that there's going to be a stock market crash. That the stock market's going to crash. I reckon that's going to happen. And so when we use the word reckon, what we are doing is we're inevitably saying that as I calculate, as I consider these things, this is my conclusion. And so Paul is telling us in the same way to reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, in the Greek, this word 
Uh, I'd like to pronounce it, but I, I get tongue-tied. What? There you go. I won't even try and repeat it. <laughs> but the Greek word here means to regard as one as something, or in other words, it means to take an inventory, to estimate, to conclude, to calculate. So in other words, Paul is looking at the fact of Christ's death and what he has accomplished, having made us now justified before God, chapter 5, Romans, and now he's talking about the fact that we have, uh, now we are free from the power of sin in chapter 6, 1, up until this point, and beyond as well. And so he says, reckon yourselves dead, calculate, or in other words, it is, it is come to the logical conclusion of this reality. In other words, if I said to you, what does one plus one equal? Two, right? I hope you didn't, hope you got that right. <laughs> so one plus one. And so, in other words, Paul's saying, calculate this fact that this is our position, this is our union, so reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and, 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 and alive to God. And so then he goes on to say that sin should not have dominion over you. God's grace empowers us to live a life that is holy, a life that is practicing righteousness. And that's what he goes on to talk about and address in a, in, a, in, a, in a practical sense. You see, the gospel must be rationalised. It is logical. It is systematic. As you read Romans, Paul's taking us systematically on this journey of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, it's a, and we have to grasp that reasonableness. We have to grasp that logic. So when Paul says, reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, we must understand what he's telling us to do. Otherwise, we'll just think, oh, well, I can just do and live the way I want. Thank God for his grace. No, that's not what Paul's, and that's not what God is saying. And so, the gospel has to be understood in this context as well as it relates to our sanctification. And so we must reach this logical conclusion as Paul would tell us to when he says, reckon yourselves, reckon upon this reality. Because if we don't, then one, we will fall short in our dealing with sin. And two, we could even fall into the very thing that Paul is condemning when he says that, uh, that, uh, that we can abuse God's grace, uh, arguing that, you know, my sin is actually putting God's grace on display. And so, and this is what he's arguing against. So you've got to reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. So the grace of God is the foundation of our salvation and the grace of God is the foundation of our sanctification and our holiness. This is important for us to understand, church. Actually, let's go a little bit further here because I want to, I want to establish this foundational aspect, so stick with me. In Titus chapter 2, verse number 11, again Paul is writing, and he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, the grace of God, teaching us, 
To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. And so Paul is making an emphasis here upon the grace of God. And he's saying that the grace of God, Paul, in, in Romans he tells us that it, 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 uh, it deal, is, uh, by grace we are saved, and also we know that in Ephesians. But we also understand that grace empowers us to live free from sin's power. That's what in Romans 6. But here he says grace of God teaches us. So the grace of God teaches us, but what does it teach us to do? It teaches us to deny that which is ungodly and to deny worldly lusts. And we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. And so if God's grace is going to teach us that, then it is up to us to make an implementation of it, correct? It is dependent upon, the onus is upon us to, to work it out. And so this is where we have to practically apply these things in the way in which we live and go about our lives. But again, it's the grace of God that's the foundation. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, you find uh, this saying where Paul says, it's good for the heart to be established in grace. In actual fact, he's actually talking to the Hebrews who, and he says, but not in various foods and washings and, and other words. So he's saying not by uh, works as such, not by uh, all these, you know, what you have to do in, in order to be saved, but no, the heart needs to be established in the grace of God, in the gospel of grace. We are saved by grace. And so it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not based on our performances per se. Somehow I'm going to earn brownie points with God and I'm going to earn my way to heaven and so forth by being good and doing right. No, 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 no. It's how you understand it. Then how you live it. And so this is what's important. Understand that the heart is good for the heart to be established in grace. It's the grace of God that teaches. It's the grace of God that saves. It's the grace of God that justifies. It's the grace of God that sanctifies. It's the grace of God that works holiness into our lives. That's what the Bible's teaching us. So God has made provision. It's not in, we don't live the Christian life in our own strength. It is God's grace that strengthens us. Hallelujah. But is that all that it's about? Does the reckoning automatically produce the action without self-effort or works? Well, let's see what Paul has to say. You have to reckon. The reckoning is indisputable. You must reckon. But does that mean now that it's automatic or do I have to do something? Let's look at verse 12. Therefore, do not... Let sin reign in your mortal body. Paul is taking the spiritual reality and now he's making a practical application and he's telling you, in light of the fact that you are to reckon yourself dead indeed to sin, calculate, understand the gospel, understand the provision, understand your position, but now understand the practical responsibility. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. And so you see the emphasis here. There is God's part and there is our part. He says in verse 13, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. So in other words, you now have to make the right choices. You now have to put in the effort in order to, uh, and, and having reckoning on this reality 
and your position and in harnessing and appropriating the grace of God in your life. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, but you've got to now work it out. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Present, don't present your body under sin. Don't let your body become a vehicle of sin now that you're a Christian, but live holy. Begin to live a sanctified Christian life. And you can read further down in these verses, in verse 13, let's read it. He says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present, again, present, yield, do, this is your part. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And he goes on to say, look at verse 15. What, shall, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? See, they're still thinking in, in light of this fact. Well, Paul's opposing at least this question so that he's thinking that people might misinterpret him. But he says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave. So in other words, Jesus has set us free. We are in Christ. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now live in that freedom. But how do I live in that freedom? Understand God's provision, his grace, his power. I can't do it. I know you can't do it. The harder you try, the more you're going to fail. But when, we humble, when we're broken and humble ourselves and say, God, help me, then God will give you that grace. And I, and I tell you, I remember personally in my life where I found myself uh, under the dominion of a particular sin in my life, uh, and I said, God, and I wanted to be free. And then this thing would come up, and it's like, why, Lord? And I learned this lesson, and where it says, do not let sin put to death or mortify. And it's like, wait a minute, oh, so I'm waiting for God to do something. And God's saying, Gary, I'm waiting for you to do something because I've given you the power, I've given you my spirit, I've given you my grace, and now you, all you have to do is say, no. Hmm. And I tell you, the, it dawned on me, and I, I, I was liberated by the power of God, not because of my positive thinking, but by the power of God and by his grace, I was set free. Does that mean I never dealt with the issue again? Oh, no, the flesh. <laughs> yeah. But I learned to walk in dominion and authority in Christ Jesus and appropriate the grace of God. Does that mean I've never sinned again? No. <laughs> Doesn't mean that either. But thank God for his grace because where I do fall short, but this is the standard. This is the word of God. This is the truth that we're considering. In actual fact, go down to verse 22 of chapter 6. Paul says, and you can read the, those verses in there which talks about the human responsibility. I won't, we won't focus on that now. But just verse 22. He says, but now, having been set free from sin, that's God's part. Having been set free from sin, that's our position and become slaves of God. That's our part. We are slaves of God. Willingly, we are saying, yes, Lord, I've taken up my cross. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. I'm willingly a slave of God. So that's the obedience. And then we have, it says in verse 22, 
it says you have and uh, and have become slaves of God you have your fruit to holiness there it is you have your fruit to holiness holiness is the fruit of the spirit holiness is not an external form of works when you put it up in that, and it's again, it's based on how we understand things. When you put it up and externally and set it up externally, you fail to grasp how, what holiness is and how it is produced. There, and so Paul says that you have, so God done his part. He set us free. He's put us in Christ. We are slaves of God. That's our part. Willingly, we're making those choices of obedience to submit to him and do right. And the fruit thereof is holiness. And it is a fruit that comes forth from God. See, I put the question to us again. Does the reckoning automatically produce righteousness without self-effort and works? The answer is it doesn't. But that doesn't mean that we go to the other extreme and set up an external form of righteousness and holiness, as some holiness movements will endeavour to do, and they they and then again, having disconnected themselves from God's grace, they fall into all kinds of error. But the truth is that the human effort is rooted in the grace of God. I'll give you an example. A plant, you know, we talk about fruit, the fruit of holiness. Now, if you plant a seed. We understand, Jesus says, unless the seed dies and we have died in Christ and we are to grow and so forth. So there are, there, are, there are various realities that are associated. So if a farmer takes a seed, he plants it in the soil and there's a miracle where that seed germinates. And, that, and, and then we understand that he has to do his part in the process in terms of, uh, the, you know, the, he has to, I mean, the, he waters it and then the sun shines on it. These are reflective of the, the divine aspects because he can't cause the sun to shine. He can't cause it to rain. But he can, you know, he can fertilise it, he can dig around it, he can uh, um, pull out the weeds and so forth and does his part. But then it, he's de solely dependent on God's part. And so when you have fruit, it's not because of men, is it? I mean, okay, yes, I know man did his part, but if there was no soil and it wasn't the miracle germination, which is salvation, and if there wasn't the sun that shined and the water uh, that, that, that flowed, none of these things would exist. Man can't produce it. It is the fruit of holiness. But man has his, his small part to play, the effort that is involved and the works and the decisions that he must make. And I pray that your understanding what it is that I'm putting forth to us this morning. We have to, each of us, individually reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin. And so I'll ask us this question as we conclude, because holiness is something in which we find here Paul talking about as part of our Christian sanctification. And so holiness is, is something that is to be pursued. It is something that must be, it, the scripture uses the word perfected. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so, having these promises, 
Let us cleanse ourselves. So he's previously, again, the context of our, of our position and the need to be separated from the world and not to be um, uh, uh, yoked with unbelievers and all. He's talking about holiness, Christian sanctification. Because we don't walk like they walk. We don't live like they live. We don't do what they do in many, way, in many instances. And so therefore, the Bible says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And that word perfecting, it literally means to, to execute, to perform, to complete it. Now, isn't it interesting? Because the Bible says that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. But yet we're told here to perfect it. We are to complete it. So what I'm saying to you this morning is there's various tensions in the gospel, and especially when, as we look at the doctrine of holiness and Christian sanctification. And you must have both at the right tension. And those two working together, where God rooted in Christ and God's grace, then we can be free. We can make the choices. We can do what God's made us and asks us and commands us to do because he gives us the provision to do so. And it's not dependent upon your strength because the moment you try and say, I'll never do that again. Okay, <laughs> just wait and see. And so I pray that God is helping us to understand these things this morning. And may God bless you through his grace and through his word. Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you this morning. God, for your precious, precious word. My God, the work that you have accomplished at Calvary. God of our union in Christ. Lord of the blessings that we have received. But I pray, Lord, let us understand that we must reckon upon these glorious truths. We must reckon upon the fact that, uh, of what you have done and who we are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, help us to practically live and apply these things in a manner that is acceptable in your sight, Lord, as we would progress upon this path of sanctification and perfecting of holiness in the fear of God. I ask, Lord, your blessing upon the assembly in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all this morning.